Luke 5.33. Last Sunday we saw the healing of a paralytic, but first we saw his sins forgiven. That was a surprise to him as his friends brought him there to be healed. And we also saw Jesus transition to fellowship and loving the society's undesirables. Here we see the continuation of Jesus training his disciples to love those people and a different way to do ministry than the old, crusty, cold, unfeeling religious system at the time. Does that sound familiar? Many people church hop or stop coming to church at all because a lot of churches are dead. There's uh, not even a semblance of God left. Sure, they have the pulpit, they have the cross, they have Jesus' name, but there's nothing behind it except rote rituals and rules to follow. Turn to Colossians 2.8. Paul says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Further down in verse 20, Paul says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments of, and doctrines of men. This is important. It says, these things have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. When I was studying this, um, I thought of the word cult. And in today's society, people, if they don't like what you're teaching, they say, you're in a cult. No, you're in a cult. And it kind of goes back and forth. So I looked in the dictionary to see what a cult is. Merriam-Webster's dictionary says this. Number one, a formal religious veneration. Number two, a religious system. Does that surprise you? I would say this. Anything that takes you away from your creator... Anything that pulls you away from a relationship with your Creator, what good is it? There's no need for it. As a matter of fact, according to the definition of a cult, it's a religious system versus a relationship with God. The whole idea, the whole goal that God set forth in His Word and sending His Son to die for our sins is reconciliation between the Creator and the creation. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 15 to the religious leaders, with your re- with your traditions, you nullify God's word or you make it void. Now, that doesn't mean that all tradition is bad. Actually, we have some traditions here. We do the baby dedications. But I always explain in the beginning how it's based on scripture. Tradition becomes a problem when it supersedes God's word or snuffs it out or takes you away from that relationship with him. And it shouldn't surprise you because a lot of this stuff is foretold in scripture. There goes my water. Turn to 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Paul writing to Timothy says this, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, 
despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turning, turn away. The end times, one of the things that's characterized by the end times is having a form of godliness but denying its power. That's what I talked about before, the appearance of, well, this is a church, we come in on Sunday, we go to feel good. But how does it apply to the rest of your life? That's, that's devastating. And also, we don't have to go there, but Second uh, Thessalonians 2.3, it says that the day of the Lord, the Lord can, won't come back, the day the Lord won't return, I'm sorry, excuse me, the day the Lord won't happen until the great falling away comes first. The word is apostasy. In the Greek, it's apo, from away, and stasis, a firm standing. So the apostasy means basically a wholesale abandonment of what we used to believe about who God is. There was, um, I should have got the statistics. They actually did a uh, study. They, they, they tested these pastors all throughout the country. What did they think of the deity of Christ? What did they think of the virgin birth? The numbers are astounding. They're like less than 50%. So the job of, of being a 7%? 77, okay. Thank you. But the, the numbers are astounding. Uh, the numbers are dropping. So the question is, what are people doing then when they're in the pulpits, what are they talking about? Now, in the text here, Jesus is trying to pull people away from the old, lifeless religious system. So let's jump into the text. Verse 33. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees? But yours eat and drink. And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Now, a disciple means literally one who learns, or a student. Many of the spiritual leaders, it was common for them to have students that would follow them around. Even in Elijah and Elisha's time, you would see the the sons of the prophets. These people would follow them around and learn from them. Uh, But Jesus taught his disciples to eat, drink, to fellowship, to love people, and enjoy life, while at the same time bringing people to God. It was a new way of showing them ministry. And we talked about fasting before. There was many reasons for fasting. But all of them pretty much had a tie to a communication or communion with God. Even when people mourned, when they they would lose a loved one, they would mourn and they would fast. Well, who are they mourning to? Who are they asking for strength? It's God. So the tie always is to God. Now, understanding that Jesus is God incarnate, will tell us that when the bridegroom is with them, when God among them is with them, there is no need to fast because he can hear from God directly. So that's what Jesus is talking about. A few scriptures on the deity of Christ. I always like to throw these in. Uh, John 14, 8 through 9, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said, how long have you been with me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, that's a pretty bold statement. None of us would make that. I certainly wouldn't make that. I've got plenty of mistakes that I made. But also John 1, you know, the Word was with us. The Word was was God, right? So Jesus also likens the coming of the Messiah to a wedding celebration. Now, let me show you how their wedding celebration would differ from ours. In our wedding celebration, you pretty much have to mortgage your house, get a hall, get a photographer, get all these people, And then you spend the four or five hours going from table to table thanking everybody for coming to your wedding. It's work. And then you go home real late, you got to get up early and catch a flight to the Bahamas. So that's our wedding celebration. But in those days, what would happen was 
the, there would be a wedding celebration and the family, the friends, the co-workers would stay at the home of the bride and groom for a whole week. Now it gets better. They would treat them like a king and a queen. It was, it was like they had servants for a whole week. And it was a joyous time. So what Jesus was trying to show was that, I see some people saying, oh, I'm not so sure I like that. <laughs> but the coming of the Messiah was a joyous time. And in verse 35, Jesus says, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. When Jesus died on the cross and ultimately ascended into heaven, it was time to fast again because the word of God, God was actually removed from their presence. Now, I believe that when we go to heaven, of course it talks about eating and a, you know, a feast celebration, but I don't believe there will be any fasting in heaven because we'll be in direct communion with God all the time without any hindrances. And the, the religious leaders at the time there here were kind of crusty and cranky. They had no joy in serving the, the Lord. They um, had something negative to say about everything. And the question is, how about us? Do we have joy in serving the Lord? A friend of mine, Kevin Hay, who's a ministry leader, says his favorite line is, we get to do this, Joey. You've got to separate the haftas from the get-tos. If you're looking at serving the Lord as, oh, man, I've got to get up and I've got to do this and I've got to serve the Lord again, that's not the right attitude. Don't do it. It's, if, you, if you say, well, you know what, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to please you. That's the right attitude to have. And also, God wants us to be joyous in serving him. He also gave us a sense of humor. You know, if, you've heard of, if you're in the computers field, you've heard of AI, artificial intelligence. is where they make computers to try to think like people. Well, one thing that they'll never get is a sense of humor. They, they don't figure out how to put a sense of humor into a computer. It just doesn't happen. It's a special thing that God's given us. Now, of course, um, they'll never figure out to make a computer exactly like a human. It just can't happen. And, and on a side note, God's ways can't be duplicated. I know people who have knee transplants and different transplants and uh, different things that they put in their body when they go bad. But we, we've been working on these things for decades. And we, with our minds, we can't substitute the perfect design that God has. Like our shoulder, the way it rotates, it's amazing how it moves. All the muscles that support it and the ligaments. There's just things that the uh, medical community will never be able to duplicate because God has made perfect. Verse 36. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. In first, um, Matthew's gospel adds, parallel gospel is, he says, no one puts an unshrunk piece on an old piece. Now, literally, if you put a new unshrunk piece of cloth on, on an old garment that's already been uh, shrunk, it's already gone through its cycles of, of expanding and contracting, and it's fragile now, what happens is the new patch is strong, and it starts to shrink, and it'll actually pull from that old garment and make the tear worse. So literally, that makes sense. Now, what Jesus would do is when it talks about the parables, Jesus would take, somebody has said he would take the familiar and link it with the unfamiliar. He would take simple things like garments, wedding celebrations, grinding at the mill, simple things that even the people with the most basis education could understand. That's what a parable was all about. But the Jews were looking for a new covenant or a new testament expressed by God in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. So turn your Bibles to Hebrews 8. 7 through 13. Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. 
Now, the writer of Hebrews encompasses the old uh, prophet Jeremiah's words from 31, 31 through 34, but he also adds commentary on top of that. Verse 7 says this, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, and this is where he transitions into Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's kind of interesting. We're talking about garments and he talks about being obsolete and growing old. There's the, the kind of the nexus there with, with the garment. Uh, and basically what he's saying is that the new covenant the new covenant that the Jews were looking forward to, that God was ushering in through Jesus, could not amalgamate with the old, like the, the old garment, like the patch and the old garment. Because what would happen is the strength of the new patch would make the old garment even weaker. So you can't, you can't mix the new with the old. It just doesn't work. And verse 37 through 38, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Here's another example common to the people at those times. They would take goat skins, and they would sew them up in certain areas and carry wine in them. That was their wineskins. And what would happen is the new wine would have a lot of sugar in it, and the fermentation process would start, and the yeast would actually convert the sugar to um, carbon dioxide, gas, and alcohol as a byproduct, and they would expand. Because skin is pliable, the new goat skins would expand with the expansion of the gases, and there would be no problem. But as the new wineskins um, would start to get older, they would lose their elasticity, and the wine would stop fermenting. So they, you know, they would, be a, would be more of a drier wineskin, and the wine would be an aged wine, and it would be fine. But the problem happens if you take new wine and put it into old wineskins, the expansion would, would tear the goatskins and it would break and the wine would be spilled and be ruined. Now, a few things, the moral of the story is a few things to look at here. Number one, you can't contain the dispensation of the Holy Spirit with the old religious system. Nothing run by men can contain the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just too powerful. And two, you can't reconcile the age of grace with the old age of the law and legalism. I'm going to turn to Galatians. I'm turning back and forth to kind of um, strengthen what I'm saying here. Galatians 3, 19. It says, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed, capital S, should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of the mediator. Verse 23, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, 
kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So you have a situation here where, why did the law come? Why did the Ten Commandments come? So that we would know that when we murdered people that it was bad, right? Or if you stole from somebody, it was bad. But the law was a tutor. The law pointed to better things, the, the age of grace, the age of Christ. So that's what it was there for. So there was a, there was a, you're not destroying the law with the new covenant, but there's a progression. And remember, the Bible says that the old covenant was broken, not because God breaks his promises, but because the people broke their covenant. They broke their covenant with the Lord, so he had to make a new covenant with them. So Jesus said himself, he says, I did not come to destroy the law of Moses. I came to, fulfillment, to fulfill it. It's a progression. Do you remember, I believe it was last year, remember that comic strip B.C., Johnny Hart? How many people are familiar with that? Okay, You look at a regular newspaper and you'd see it was like a comic strip of the caveman times. Well, I guess I would say that he's probably a Christian because last year, I believe it was around the time of Easter, he showed a short strip and he showed the menorah and the Judaic system and the transition to the resurrection of Christ. Now, he took a lot of heat for that. But he was right. It wasn't anti-Semitic. It was a progression. It was what the Bible is all about. How many of you remember that, that incident that happened? And a lot of, a lot of newspapers pulled his uh, comic strip for good, right? But you have to make the distinction between the importance of the Old Testament and the law and the subsequent worthlessness of the Pharisaical and the uh, legalistic teachings, the misapplication of the old system. So what happened is God's law served a purpose, but it was abused. It was, it was used completely to take people away from God. Verse 39 says this, the last part of that section. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. People are resistant to change, no matter how good it is for them. People are comfortable where they're at. We're creatures of habit. My wife uh, makes fun of me because I have these t-shirts and you know they get washed they get holes in them they get washed again they get more holes in them there's tears in them and she's like what do you wear that just throw it out you got plenty of the t-shirts but i like the old t-shirts i remember there's a few of them that she actually she's you know i would put them in the laundry and she'd throw them out on me has that happened to any of you <laughs> but and even as we get older we get set in our ways we begin we become such creatures of habit i mean what what six six year old seven year old wouldn't want to live on macaroni and cheese and chicken nuggets, right? I try to get my son to try new foods. I'm like, just take a little bit on the teaspoon. He goes, I don't like it. Well, did you ever taste it? No, but I know I don't like it. So, you know, adults, kids, same thing. So we're going to go into chapter 6 now. This is a, a, a portion of scripture where Jesus, uh, he, he's, he's doing some work on the Sabbath here. And of course, the religious people have a problem with that. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, what are you, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath? The Sabbath means rest. God set it up as an example in Genesis 2 as the last day of seven. You can do work all those days, but on the seventh day you have to rest. He sanctified it and he blessed it. And it was also observed and commanded at Mount Sinai with the giving of the law. It was reiterated. Must rest, worship God. Now, is it because God likes to control us? No. 
you know, because of the fall, we don't live forever anymore, and our bodies need rest. And as you get older, your body needs more rest. But, um, you know, he wanted us to rest. And it was, rest is good for us. If you ever see somebody who's a workaholic and they work seven days a week, they're headed for a nervous breakdown or, or something else. You know, their bodies just crash. They get sick more. God designed us and he knows what we need. So he, he wanted us to rest on that seventh day. But he also wanted us to spend the time worshiping him and thinking about him. Now, is, does that mean he's an egomaniac? No. It means it's for our good. When we tap into God, when we tap into his strength, when we tap into his love, it benefits us. So these were commanded, but at the same time, it was for our benefit. And you were forbidden to work or conduct business on, on those days. Now, over the centuries, the uh, ancient rabbinical commentaries, the Talmuds, would write about uh, what God meant. And people started to follow what they said instead of reading the scriptures for themselves. And it's tragic to see people follow men today instead of the scriptures. Now, I don't want anybody to follow me. I'm just a facilitator. You know, I take God's word, I read it, I put it in an application, um, and you take it home for you and you learn something for the day. But don't follow me. I've got my own problems. <laughs> so uh, we also pass out Bibles, as you see, in the beginning of service. Then to me, that reminds me of Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Paul said that the Bereans were more fair-minded, they were more noble than the Thessalonians, and that everything we said to them, they would receive with readiness, but they also searched the scriptures to see if these things were true. So I take you along scripture by scripture so you see that I'm not making this stuff up. But um, it was very important for Paul, and it was very impressive to him, that these people, as soon as Paul was done speaking, or while he was speaking, they flip in scrolls and pages and want to see if what he said made sense. So that's, that's a person in, in God's eyes who's, who's, who's fair and, and noble. Uh, I can't stress enough reading God's word. A few scriptures here, John 14:23. you don't have to turn to it, uh, 14:23 through 24. Jesus said, those who love me will, will hear my words, you know, will follow my words. Those who don't love me will not. So pretty much you, you, you only can fall into one or two camps on that one. If you love him or you don't love him. And what is it based on? I, tr- I talk to people who call themselves Christian, nominal Christians, and they say, hey, bro, you read the Bible? No, I don't read the Bible, you know, at all. And, and I would say, well, you know, Jesus makes the statement in John chapter 14 that he puts people in two camps, those that love Jesus and don't, those who don't. And how do you know if you love Jesus if you've never read his word? It's kind of like a logic thing, but it works. <laughs> and then Psalm 119, I want to turn to that, 9 through 16 talking about that, that close relationship with a, with a man or a woman and their creator. Psalm 119, 9 through 16. He says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. There's a relationship between an individual and their creator. Where's the middleman? Where's the person to, you know, say, well, you can't understand this. I have to interpret it for you. They don't exist. It's a one-on-one relationship, and it still holds true for today. But by Jesus' day, 
there was all kinds of schools of thought, all different, uh, you know, major rabbis, Rabbi Hillel, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shammai, and they would have different opinions on divorce, keeping the Sabbath, and things like that. And they would put all types of restrictions. And on the Sabbath, it would be, you know, God was, was very simple in what he said, don't work, worship me, rest, right? Well, they would put all types of restrictions, and they would say, well, well, if you really think about it, if you think about what you have to do tomorrow, that's a sin. You're breaking the Sabbath. Or marital relationships with your spouse was off limits because it could have been work. Uh, you know, they had all these unusual things. You know, <laughs> I'm just going to leave that one alone. <laughs> but they had all these unusual stipulations that they put on God's word. Okay, all these restrictions which, which smothered the life of what God had originally intended. So they considered the disciples walking through the fields. Now they're walking through the fields and the, you know, the stalks are high and they're picking off the heads of grain. And as they're walking, they're rubbing. You know, there's a, the inedible part of the wheat and it would, the wind would blow it away and then they would pop it in their mouth and they would eat it because they were hungry. So what the, the religious leaders at the time considered that was you know, picking, picking the heads off was harvesting and rubbing the uh, inedible part off was threshing. And then putting it in your mouth, I guess, was preparing. So uh, what would happen was it was considered work, and they had a problem with that, or they considered it work. Verses 3 through 4. But Jesus answered them, saying, Have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some of those some to those who were with him, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat. You can read this story, if you're taking notes, in 1 Samuel 21. Many of you are familiar with the story. David was running from King Saul. He had his men with him. You know, Saul was bloodthirsty. He wanted to kill David. And David showed up at, at, you know, where the priests were at the temple. And he was starving, him and his men. He goes, do you have anything to eat? We're so hungry. And the priest said, all we have is the showbread. Now, the showbread was 12 large loaves that were put out. Uh, it was part of part, what they put in the temple, and only the priests were allowed to eat those. But the priests gave the showbread to David and his men to keep them from starvation. Now, human preservation here from starvation outweighed ceremonialism. Yes, God had a law. It was called ceremonialism. The showbread had to be there. But David was also anointed as the king, and God was more important with David's life being spared not starving to death than keeping that showbread out there, right? So there was no conflict actually between these two laws. We see it in the observable universe. And what do I mean by that? Well, we know that gravity exists. If I take this cap, as you saw with my bottle before it fell on the floor, ten times out of ten, if I let go of this cap, it's going to hit the ground because gravity exists, right? So then how does an airplane fly, right? Those of you who are in the science field knows, one, by Bernoulli's principle, and two, by Newton's third law of motion. And what happens is it causes lift on the wings, and the wings actually lift the whole plane, and it flies. If you can get enough air to get past those, those specially designed wings, it'll cause lift, and the plane lifts. Now, as that several hundred thousand ton plane is, is going through and you're watching it, does gravity still exist? Yes, it does. But Bernoulli's principle and Newton's third law of motion keep that plane in the air as long as the, the, the airspeed is up. Once the airspeed drops, the plane drops. And that's something that hopefully none of us will ever experience. But, so you have these two laws that seemingly are in contact or conflict, but they're not. And it's the same thing. Ceremonial is a good thing. Cer ceremonialism. God ordained it. 
However, if another law that's more important comes in contact with it, that law supersedes the old law, as with David, as, as we saw. And I'm just going to go to Matthew 12, verses 5 through 8. Matthew adds a little bit more uh, than Luke does here. Matthew 12, 5 through 8. Jesus says this, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what he's saying here is that the priests work on the Sabbath. What does that mean? Well, on the eighth day, male children have to be circumcised. Certain sacrifices and offerings have to go on regardless. So there are times that the priests have to actually work on the Sabbath, which is not lawful to do. So Jesus is trying to show them that. And Mark 2.27 adds that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. That word man is anthropos in the Greek, which comes, it's male and female, it's mankind. Um, It's another example of where tradition here, they, they elevated tradition over God's intentions. Uh, Many groups try to strangulate the relationship with our Creator through overbearing rules and regulations. And that's not what it's all about. Even the Seventh-day Adventists, I remember my mom was studying with them for a while, and thank God she broke away from them. But one of their rules were, they said to me, well, you work on Saturday, you're a police officer, you're not going to make it to heaven. I'm like, why? Because you 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 have to have your Saturdays free. So if I figure out a way to get them to not let me work on Saturdays, which I wouldn't mind, I get to go to heaven. That's pretty much the case, as well as other oddities. And what they do is they, they're nothing more than the modern-day legalists or Judaizers. They try to have people go back to the old strangulating system. Now, the apostles counteracted this doctrine in their letter to the Gentile converts in Acts 15. If you get a chance, read Acts 15. Uh, there was no mention of keeping the Sabbath to the new Gentile converts. And I also want to go to Galatians 3, 1 through 5. Galatians 3, 1 through 5. Paul says this to the Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And basically, you know, he's reiterating that. It's either one or the other. If If you have the Spirit, you're not made perfect by going back to the law again. That's not how it works. And in verse 5, Jesus says, and he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he says that in pretty much all the Gospels. Um, when you un- understand the full significance of what the religious system taught about the Sabbath, this was yet another reference to Jesus', Jesus deity. To say he was Lord of the Sabbath was also another bold statement. The sad fact of this is that those who were supposed to be helping people get closer to God were actually pulling them further away. And unfortunately, it's no different today. A few things to learn about this. We want, to, uh, we want to talk about people who teach false doctrine from the pulpit and hold people in subservience to that. But you know what? Some of the responsibility also comes on the hearer. There are some people that actually seek to go to churches that make them feel the way they want to feel. 
you know, whatever their agenda is, they go to that, they seek out a place that's going to be in line with their agenda, regardless of what is in the scriptures. You know, we, we've talked about the folly of the doctrine that God wants everybody to be a millionaire. Well, first of all, if there was a $300 million lottery and everybody bought tickets and everybody won, everybody would get a dollar. So that kind of doesn't work anyway. It's not feasible. But it's people's hearts. In their hearts, if they want to be rich and they want Jesus and they want to be rich at the same time, okay, they will seek out those type of places. And two, many people would rather go through a series of religious rituals to feel better about themselves. Why, Why not cultivate a relationship with God? Well, because it takes, you know, rituals are easier. Don't do this, don't do that, don't handle this, don't handle that. Don't eat this, don't do, eat that, but maybe on that day you could eat it, but not on this day you can't eat it. And if you can follow those th- things and observe them, you feel better about yourself. You kind of, you know, you kind of go through a flow chart. You know, you, you go through those guidelines and you think that you're doing something good. But it doesn't matter, you don't have to apply it to your life, right? Um, again, observing a bunch of rules is... is is easier than to grow a relationship with your creator. That takes work. I'd like to, you know, I'd like to talk to this, about this, you know, often about the dating relationship with maybe spouses uh, before you were married. And what did you do when you were dating, you know, your spouse now? Well, you would have endless con- conversations to get to know that person intimately. Well, is it any different with God? The more you pray, the more you talk to the Lord, the more you listen to him, the more you build that relationship with him. It's no different. This two is you have to think about the person's likes and dislikes prior to getting them a gift. You certainly wouldn't want to get somebody a gift and they open it and go, oh, that's terrible. You know, you want to, you think about their likes and dislikes and what they would like to have or where they would like to go out to eat. Is it any different with God? When you read his word, you know what he likes and what he doesn't like. He's our heavenly father. The more you read his word, the more you get to know him intimately and what he, what pleases him and what doesn't please him. And three, you think of ways to please the other person because of your love for that person. Now, that, beca- that happens when, as a Christian, you mature. You're praying, you're reading, you're fellowshipping, and you're growing. And you're getting to know your Father in Heaven more. And you're maturing in your walk, and you will do things, you will not do things, not because it says you can't, but because you don't want to hurt your Father's feelings in Heaven. See, there's the difference. There's the twist. Where some people will not do things because they feel better about following a bunch of rules and res- regulations versus saying, I'm gonna, I don't want to disappoint my dad, right? So, um, and another thing too is, you have to take note of the word change. The word change is a dirty word to us, some of us. Uh, and I've, I've said it before, we're all resistant to change. Jesus came and he spoke the oracles of God and he showed people things, but a lot of them didn't care. They wanted to worship God the way they wanted to worship him and they didn't want to change it. Now, you can apply that to a human relationship, Okay? If it's my wife and I, and I, I say, well, I know I'm going to make my, my wife happy and strengthen my marriage. Every Monday, I'm going to buy her flowers. By the time they wilt on Sunday, Monday, I'm going to buy her flowers again. And my wife comes to me and says, you know, honey, I need some help with, with, with the boy. You know, I need some help. Could you please take out the garbage once in a while? Could you, you know, could you do something around the house? No, babe, I got it under control. I'm just going to get you flowers. Because <laughs> that's what you want. She's like... And she keeps coming to me and says, babe, look, you know, this, the house is a mess. The kid's running around like a lunatic. He's hanging from the chandelier. I need some help around here. Monday's coming. The flowers are on their way. <laughs> now, you would say, that's absurd. That is absurd. Where would your marriage go? wouldn't go very far, would it? But is it any different with God? God says, I love you. I want to hear from you. Pray. 
read my word. Those who love me will read my word and follow it. And, and what we're saying to God is, got it under control. I'm not going to eat certain foods. I'm going to say this five times a day. Got it under control. And God's like, no, that's not what I want. See, that's the difference. That's the, that's the whole difference. It's a relationship. So relationships with a human being, with your spouse, right, who's an intelligent, created being, and you, why would you treat God any less, who's the one who created that intelligence and that mind and those likes and dislikes? Why would we treat him any less? But we do. So the point is we can all benefit from change, and as we are transformed in the image of Christ, we will get closer to God. And that's something that we all need to think about.